0: Dee Scully is the first author of the paper, Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt. Dee, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with a definition. What is machine learning? So machine learning is,
1: um, you can think of it as the intersection of statistics, uh, computational power, and engineering. Um, Machine learning is the ability, or the the science really, of, of learning from large amounts of data, and to develop systems that uh, exhibit behaviors that we can't really define uh, by uh, sitting down and thinking of all the if-then rules. So we learn those rules from data.
0: So to quote your paper, machine learning offers a fantastically powerful toolkit for building systems quickly. Why does machine learning allow for complex systems to be built quickly?
1: So let me give you an example. Um, If you want to develop a spam classifier, So a classifier that will determine if an email is spam or not. Um, One way you could do that is by sitting down and and thinking of all the different ways that a spammer might try and get you to read a message. Um, And they might throw some funny characters in a a message or they might say, you know, buy a Viagra or who knows what. And you could try and list those all, but that would take you a long time. And even if you sat down and thought of a 1,000 or 10,000 or a million of these rules, uh, it would be rather brittle, and the spammers would be able to come up with some new thing that would defeat your system quite quickly. But if instead you um, develop a system that allows you to learn from data, then you don't have to spend all the time of thinking of those individual rules. Um, you'll be able to learn those rules from the data very quickly, assuming that you have a large amount of data, um, and develop the system in, in quite a bit less time.
0: Great. And so your paper argues that machine learning has all these great features, but it often leads to technical debt. How do you define technical debt? So technical debt is not is not um, our metaphor. Uh, I think Ward Cunningham uh, developed
1: this metaphor a while back um, to help um, sort of serve as a way of, of thinking about the costs of moving quickly versus moving well. Um, when developing software, it's, it's very easy to get into modes of... Um, sort of adding on an additional feature or, or using cut and paste methodologies or, or any sort of way of, of writing code very, very quickly that's not particularly maintainable. Um, and as we do that, we accumulate technical debt. Um, and this debt metaphor is interesting because it's something that we can say allows us to sort of take on a cost. And if we pay that cost off the same way we might pay off the cost of a mortgage, um, everything's okay. You know, we, we, can, uh, we can move forward that way. However, if we're not aware of the debt that we're taking on, or if we take on too much debt, that can really have uh, quite um, dramatically bad consequences.
0: Right. And we'll get into the concept of hidden debt further on. But can you talk more about this compounding aspect? Why does technical debt tend to compound just like financial debt?
1: That's a great question. Um, first of all, this is just an empirical Uh, Finding. It it seems that when we acquire debt, we tend to acquire more and more debt over time um, in a technical debt sense. And I think that this is in part because once you have a, a project or a piece of code that has some technical debt, it's probably something like an API that might have been widened too much or there's you know, six pieces of of cut and paste code, it can be quite difficult to um, add something in in a clean way that reduces that debt. So instead, the temptation is, oh, I need to move quickly. There's all this cruft around. I'll just add a little bit more. And the more cruft there is, the easier it is and the more tempting and more difficult it is to avoid uh, the addition of of, uh, more and more cruft.
0: And why is it so easy to accumulate massive... Ongoing debt, this maintenance costs when you're building machine learning systems.
1: Well, that's really interesting. Um, it's it's something that I don't think was widely appreciated. Um, you know, e- even a year or two ago, necessarily by by the um, the broader community. Um, certainly, the people who have been working on machine learning systems have um, uh, found this to be true, and. and when we've talked about this work, we've gotten sort of almost Oprah Winfrey moments of, oh my goodness, I'm so happy that you've, you've talked about this. This is something that we've all been been experiencing, but nobody has said. Um, so, so this isn't a, a novel finding by us in any way. We, we, we were just the ones to, to um, take the time to write it down. Um, what's interesting about machine learning systems is that they have all of the same problems um, in terms of technical debt opportunities that traditional software does because machine learning systems are built off of code. So if you know we have problems around testing or, or uh, bad APIs in our, our machine learning code, that's an area for debt. But then they have a number of additional areas um, that are sort of unique to machine learning that are all essentially rooted in the problem that machine learning systems solve problems that we can't formally define and so we need the data to do that definition for us. That need, we need the data to guide our system behavior. And because of that, um, data ends up being a, a vector for increasing technical de- debt that's really quite tricky to think about.
0: And your paper suggests that machine learning can lead to this hidden technical debt, as you've mentioned already. What is hidden debt? So
1: hidden debt, I, I would define as, as technical debt that we we aren't really aware of. Um, so you can imagine if you use a credit card um, to, to buy a purchase and, and you're aware that there's an 18% interest rate, that's one thing. If however, you're a college student who just got a credit card and didn't necessarily read all the fine print and you go off and buy a new sofa, that might be a very another thing.
0: Right, okay. So. And getting into like the root causes of wh- of why machine learning leads to this this debt, um, you, one thing you talk about is that complex models erode boundaries, and um, in machine learning, you're 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 oftentimes making models. Um, what do you mean by by these by these complex models eroding abstraction boundaries? Yeah. But,
1: um... So in traditional software engineering, one of the ways that we can manage our system complexity is by uh, the idea of encapsulation um, and basically making one piece of code do one thing. Um, So we do this by uh, data structures and abstractions and good, good APIs and things like this. But at some root level, a machine learning system is a system that takes many different information sources and mixes them together in a way that we can't define. And this leads uh, to uh, almost a crazy erosion of boundaries where we can't really say that we can take any particular part of the machine learning system and abstract it out in a, a carefully defined way. Uh, this leads to to um, a situation where changing any one part of the system behavior leads to potentially changes across the entire system.
0: Could you give an example of this?
1: Sure. So um, let's say, you know... Uh, all of the examples that I'm going to talk about are hypothetical, um, to, just for, for background here. But, but they're, they're rooted in experience. So let's imagine we've got our, our spam classifier that, that we were talking about earlier. Uh, and we found that it does a particularly bad job at classifying spam in Iceland, uh, because the Icelandic spammers, for whatever reason, have a totally different way of, of approaching the, um, the space. And so we might try and um, correct for that by maybe adding some new features that are specific to Iceland. Or maybe we tweak our regularization parameters or other s- machine learning settings um, that change the system behavior. And in doing so, we may discover that the the uh, prediction behavior on the Icelandic spam get, gets improved. But suddenly the spam in Sweden becomes less easy to detect. Um, because it, before maybe um, uh, some of the credit that was being assigned to uh, Icelandic spam was uh, in this... Uh, geographically horrific metaphor was being assigned to Sweden, and then by by separating these out, we we allowed the model to do uh, s- suddenly different things in ways that we didn't intend.
0: So, from a more uh, high level perspective, why is it so hard to maintain abstraction boundaries in a machine learning system?
1: That's a great question. The, um, part of the issue here is that. Um, the abstraction boundaries are not really defined. Um, when, when we have uh, a piece of code, we, we uh, use that, you know, or a library, it's uh, intended to, to uh, exhibit a certain behavior. As we mentioned before, in um, machine learning land, the behavior is defined by the, by the data. Um, the combination of the data in the system, but mostly by the data. And so... Um, The natural world produces the data, and the natural world doesn't really have any prior need to have strict abstraction boundaries.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you write that um, arguably the most important reason for using a machine learning system is precisely that the desired behavior cannot be effectively implemented in software logic without dependency on external data. So are you saying that machine learning is the marriage of hard-coded software logic and constantly changing external data?
1: Um if I was to weigh those two things, uh the the external data is in many ways more important than the hard-coded logic. Um the hard-coded logic that we're talking about here is some sort of optimization algorithm. We can pick your favorite. Um, but the, the, uh, the optimization algorithms inside the machine learning systems um, react very strongly to changes in the data. And so it's the data that drives the changes for sure.
0: Another definition that you give is that, quote, a machine learning package is a tool for mixing data sources together. Why does this entanglement of data sources make it so hard to isolate different components of the system and to make improvements? Let's see. So
1: one of the things that we uh, try to do um, when we're making predictions is to be as accurate as possible. And um, to do this, we'll often try and um, take many different factors into account. So in our email example, maybe we'll take into account um, the email address that the um, uh, email was sent from, maybe the routers that it went through, maybe um, the text in the the email uh, document. Um, all of these things are, are different signals that uh, we don't necessarily know in advance how they should be weighed. Uh, is, the, is the subject heading more important? Uh, is the subject heading only important if certain uh, words in the document text appear? Um, is this particular router only important on certain days of the week? We don't know in advance. Uh, and so that's why uh, we, we need machine learning to help us resolve these different kinds of uh, ambiguities.
0: Right. And, and one other way that you can mitigate this problem is to, you can isolate the models and you can serve ensembles. Can you explain this in more detail? Like, can you give an overview of how ensembling in a machine learning system works? Yeah. So,
1: um, one of the, the uh, ways that you can do well in machine learning is by creating different models, uh, from slightly different data sets or different signals or or maybe with different algorithms. And these, these models may have uncorrelated errors. Um, if the errors are uncorrelated, then when you combine them together, maybe even just by simple averaging, um, you will get a better prediction um, on average in the end. So it can be tempting to say, "Okay, well, we might try and get some sort of um, uh, decomposition of our problem by by decomposing our prediction problem into different um, uh, ensemble models." If the, we have a number of areas that do truly decompose, this might work out. So, for example, in our email situation, if we wanted to solve the Icelandic spam problem by taking all of the Iceland data and uh, siphoning it off completely to an Iceland-only model and then only mixing at the end where we maybe decide which country model to go to, that might work out. But if instead we've got an ensemble of, um, say, you know, a uh, random forest and an SVM, which are two different machine learning methods, and mix them, those together at the end, the fact that those errors are decorrelated um, was one of the big deals. If we then go and try and improve one of our models, it might be the case that we make one of our component models in the ensemble more accurate. But in doing so, we might make those, that model's errors more correlated, not less correlated, mm-hmm. and actually um, decrease the overall system accuracy. Uh, exactly the opposite of the intended effect and exactly the opposite of the effect that we were uh, observed at, at the component model
0: level. So do these correlated errors, do they tend to be uh, more common than you would expect?
1: Uh, certainly, um, error correlations can happen anytime time um, that uh, you've got quirks in the data and uh, experience has shown that the data is often quirky.
0: <laughs> okay. So another concern of machine learning systems is what you call a hidden feedback loop. What is a hidden feedback loop?
1: Yeah, hidden feedback loops will wreck your day. Um, So you can imagine a world where, let's say, we're trying to uh, um, predict spam, um, and we, we make a model, we train it off of a bunch of data that we had before, and we release it into the world, and it goes off, and it marks a bunch of data uh, or a bunch of uh, spam correctly, turns it off, well done model. And then on the next day, the spammers realize that their spam isn't getting through and they try and do something else. Um, they Instead of selling Viagra, they sell some other drug. Um, now the model needs to react to that if we're going to have any chance of having a, a healthy ongoing system. So what do we do? We take in the new data, we feed it to the model, And the model updates itself, and hopefully we send out some updated model that then has uh, a new effect. Now, you can imagine that this uh, creates the opportunity for the model to essentially influence the way that it's trained. Um, And this is uh, something that essentially breaks any of the theoretical guarantees that we have for standard supervised learning algorithms. Um, uh, These algorithms do not account for the the sort of interaction with the world component. Uh, So things can get quite hairy.
0: So systems that use machine learning often end up with what you call high-debt design patterns. What types of anti-patterns should be avoided by machine learning engineers? So
1: one of the big ones that we've seen um, is the the uh, use of glue code. Um, so by glue code, I, I mean any sort of code often written in some scripting language like Python or Perl that allows you to get data from one system into another. Um this glue code design pattern uh, happens quite naturally because not everybody is an expert in writing machine learning code. Oftentimes it's uh, you know, more convenient or more cost effective to maybe take a machine learning package, maybe from an open source uh, area or from the cloud, or uh, maybe it's a company specific package, and then to try and use that to your own ends. Uh, reuse is generally seen as a good thing. But each package probably has some specific data format. Um, and it has some quirks to it. And so you need to get the data maybe from, um, your repository into the right formats in the right way and send it back in in to to be trained. Then you need to get the data out we can now have a trained model. We need to put it into serving in some way and allow it to impact our, our system. Uh, so that again requires some amount of, of custom code to be written, um, None of this is is really a surprise, except that because there isn't really a standard set of APIs to be working with, if we then want to change the uh, machine learning system that we're using at the core, we've got a real problem because we essentially have to rip out all the glue code that we've written and replace it from scratch. And that's very high cost.
0: Right. So you talked about glue code. There's also an anti-pattern that you discuss called dead experimental code paths. And you give a really grim example of this, which is Night Capital, which probably listeners have heard of, if they haven't. Knight Capital is this company that lost like four hundred and sixty five million dollars due to unexpected behavior. Uh, and you know, as you discuss, the unexpected behavior resulted from obsolete experimental code paths. So do you know any more about this example? Like what were the obsolete experimental code paths that led that led to such a giant loss of money for for night capital?
1: So one of the ways that we've certainly seen um, in a variety of different um, machine learning projects is that because it's quite difficult to, um, say, rip away all your glue code and um, start with an entirely new machine learning package, if you have some algorithmic tweak that you want to try, um, you might implement it as a little conditional code path in in your machine learning system. So rather than, you know, if I want to, say, try um, a different way of weighing the data, um, instead of ripping out my, my uh, um, package and, and putting in a new new package that knows about weighing data in, in one way or another, I might just, just add in a couple lines of code in one place. Okay, now I've got a branch, and maybe I activate it with some flag or some configuration setting. And then somebody else comes along, and they've got a different way of tweaking learning rates or regularization parameters, or they decide that they need to do a certain kind of data cleaning. And what you have quite quickly is a large combinatorial um, set of... Uh, Possible branches that all need to be explored and arguably really need to be tested if they're going to be used. Um, testing a combinatorial uh, explosion is, is obviously not something that's going to work well in the long term. Uh, and so I, I can uh, I can certainly speculate that this is uh, the sort of thing that might have led to uh, what we saw with the uh, the Night Capital experimental code paths.
0: Yeah, and. Uh- I think like the the end result was something crazy. like they were they were like trading they were on opposite night capital was on opposite ends of uh, of one trading position and they were just like making this trade repeatedly and just losing money on every transaction. and they were basically like the buyer and the seller. So that that's I mean that was the manifestation of the um, of the money loss that resulted from the experimental code path. Certainly um, technical debt has real costs. <laughs> right. Okay, so in order to maintain system health, how should programmers manage their experimental code paths?
1: Well, um, first of all, it's important to be disciplined, and that's maybe one of the the central points of this paper is that the discipline matters. And here, the discipline is the discipline to go back and look carefully at each of the experimental code paths that we put in and decide if they're still relevant. If they are relevant then we need to take the time to refactor them into some well-testable kind of framework. If they're not relevant, then we should delete them. And taking the time to delete code is an activity that everyone should praise at all times because every piece of code that is deleted is one more piece of code that doesn't need to be tested and maybe a whole branch of experimental um, combinatorial code paths that don't need to be worried about. Okay, that's great.
0: So machine learning systems often have to interact directly with the external world. How does the instability of the external world lead to technical debt within a machine learning system?
1: So in some sense, um, the existence of the instabilities is a vector for technical debt in and of itself. Uh, you could call this instability debt to some degree. Um, so imagine that we had a hypothetical system for predicting shoe sales. Um, So this model is really good at figuring out when people will buy shoes. It's going along in October. It's doing a good job of predicting shoe sales. It's going along. Um, November hits. Black uh, Friday hits. And suddenly, everybody in the world is buying shoes because they want to give them as holiday gifts. The model sees this and says, oh, wow, shoes are hot. Everybody in the world is going to buy shoes. And it changes its internal predictions. What happens the next Monday? Or what happens, say, through the holiday season on January 1st? The model now needs to react again. How quickly does it react? Well, it's some combination of how often we retrain it, uh, the amount that we allow it to weigh recent data versus previous data, um, and the, the, uh, the various features that we give it. Um, there's going to be a balance, and uh, managing that balance is something that's very difficult to do a priori.
0: And one of the methods for managing that balance is what you call a decision threshold. What is a decision threshold in a machine learning system?
1: So oftentimes we want to use a, a machine learning system to make some kind of decision. In the uh, spam classifier case, you know we, we have to decide whether to show this um, email to the user in uh, their inbox or whether we put it into some spam folder. And we're going to probably need to ha- decide yes or no. And so we'll need to take some score, maybe some probability of spam, and put a threshold on it. Now, that threshold is a brittle thing. It's probably some number. Um, And it might be the case that if maybe the incidence of spam rises dramatically because of uh, some external world factor, that that particular threshold might become obsolete, especially if it's manually set.
0: And how could you update that decision threshold over time? So um,
1: the decision threshold is is sort of one instance of... um, uh, sort of the manually set knobs. Uh, obviously, in machine learning systems, we would like this sort of knob to be learned from data as, as often as possible. But in the end, there's always going to be some number of knobs that need to be set by, by hand. Um, in the threshold case, it might be um, that we're setting the specific, specific threshold, or it might be a, a more subtle form of threshold, like saying that, okay, well, we want to be 95 or whatever percent um, precise or have X percent recall. And maybe that set of, of tradeoffs might change over time. And again, would manifest itself as some sort of knob about false positive versus uh, false negative rates.
0: Interesting. So, uh, another challenge of machine learning systems is this monitoring and testing aspect. Why is it so hard to monitor and test a running system? So, um, I view uh, so first to say what I mean by monitoring and testing.
1: um, On the testing side, I view testing as things that happen offline and monitoring as things that happen in in the online case. So if we want to focus here on the online case, uh, where where things are happening in the real world, um, we can have a very well-tested system, um, but it could still be subject to uh, changes due to world behavior. It could be changes um, in the input signals. There could be changes um, in some pipeline upstream. Um, all of which could influence the behavior of our system, even though the specific code within our system is very well tested. And so we need to pay very close attention to uh, both the inputs and the outputs of our system at all times um, to make sure that nothing is is uh, happening that's unexpected.
0: Uh, so your paper makes some conclusions about how machine learning can create technical debt, which we've discussed. How can we pay down this technical debt?
1: So... Um, you know we, we can talk about a, a 12-step plan that uh, <laughs> uh, you know uh, um, starts with recognizing that there's a problem and th- that's certainly one of the areas that I think is is most important It might be the the main contribution of this paper is just helping people realize that there are real real opportunities in their systems to clean up technical debt um, and then uh, taking the time to um, to prioritize the cost of paying this down um, because uh, when you are paying down technical debt, this is something like taking the time to refactor your systems or taking the time to um, figure out how to better monitor your systems and, and implement that monitoring. Uh, it looks like uh, removing signals that you no longer need or deleting code paths that are no longer required. All of this is work and work, work is expensive. Uh, and It's time that could be spent um, doing other things like improving your signals or or creating different models. Uh, and so prioritizing that work is important. Um, Uh, oftentimes that's that's sort of a management decision and and being able to make the case that look this isn't just a pain it's it's an actual ongoing cost that's going to compound can maybe help management folks uh, make those kinds of decisions in a more rational fashion
0: Mm. is there uh, like any um techniques or strategies for for measuring how much uh, a certain piece of technical debt is is uh is impairing you particularly in the realm of machine learning
1: so um this is, uh, it, obviously it'd be wonderful if technical debt were a metric, unfortunately it's a metaphor. <laughs> um, but so th- there's some sort of gut checks that we can do to, to figure out sort of what is the state of our system. Um, so wh- one gut check is to sort of ask ourselves how much would it cost and how much effort would we have to take to try a new algorithm or a new approach? Is that something that's relatively simple or is it going to be, Oh my gosh, we have to rip out all this glue code and we have to completely start from scratch. Um, the, the sort of qualitative answers to that can, can be quite informative. Um, simple things like, do we know uh, where all of our data is coming from? Can we track the the transitive closure of all of our data sources? Um, and do we know which of these are stable and not stable? Um, that, that can give very good insights into how much technical that is is in our system. Um, and then figuring out how carefully we can measure the impact of each of the changes that we put forward um, can be a, a useful way to... Um, assess you know any sorts of uh, feedback loops or, or things of that sort so it's not a science um, and certainly technical debts uh, is, is not a strict metric but but there are some things that we can do um, to to get qualitative handles on this
0: you're right that perhaps the most important insight to be gained is that technical debt is an issue that both engineers and researchers need to be aware of so how, how can engineers and researchers work together to reduce this technical debt? And like, what, what is the dichotomy between a researcher and an engineer? How, how are, how are their, their concerns separated when working on machine learning?
1: So, um, I think in an ideal world, um, engineers and researchers work very closely together. And in fact, are often the same people. Um, I believe very strongly that, that machine learning projects work best when there's a heterogeneity of, of expertise in the systems, uh, in, in the teams. Um, so uh, machine learning has really been an empirical field uh, in many ways, and many of the best successes that have come out of machine learning, especially in recent years, have been uh, the marriage of a, um, a useful algorithm with incredible infrastructure that allows it to work at scale. So this can only happen in a, a sustainable way if those incredible infrastructures are built with really clean APIs um, and uh, are easy to test and um, easy to maintain. This is extra work on the part of the algorithmic designer because um, it can be quite a bit of, of uh, hassle to figure out how to structure an algorithm in a way that it can be implemented in a testable fashion uh, and with a, a, uh, a clean API.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of this, we did a week of shows about data science. And one of the recurring problems in this uh, relationship between data scientists and engineers seemed to be that the data scientists would write a model in one language, like R or Python, and then they would hand that model off to the engineer to go implement it in Java. Um, I mean, have you seen this disconnect in languages lead to technical debt?
1: So, um, certainly uh, one of the... uh patterns that uh, I tend to worry about is if you have a sy- system that's written in uh, multiple languages, this, this may be a, uh, an indicator that you have quite a bit of technical debt. But additionally, the, um, I tend to be very wary of prototypes in machine learning systems. Mm. Um, it's tempting for researchers to say, well, look, I need to work quickly. I want to write a paper next week. I'm going to write a quick prototype in some prototyping language. Uh, however, if all we do is prototypes at the research level, then the transition into full-scale systems is horrific. Uh, It can be extremely expensive to take a small-scale idea and turn it into a large-scale system. The other thing that's maybe more of an issue is not just the cost, but the fact that the large-scale system is going to have different behaviors than the small-scale prototype does. So the insights that you gain from the small-scale prototype might not even hold at full scale, Mm -hmm. because changing anything changes everything.
0: What advice would you give to these types of organizations that have people some people working in Python or R, and then other people working in Java? Um, so my,
1: my basic advice is that uh, folks who are working in uh, machine learning systems should be um, making sure that their full-scale system is robust and flexible enough to allow for experimentation and algorithmic development.
0: So uh, are you saying that you think that the people who uh, write the models should be the same people who implement them?
1: Uh, certainly, I, th- I think that's um, uh, the best way to go, yeah. And this requires system design to be extremely careful so that uh, there's enough flexibility in the system to be able to do this in a, you know, uh, maintainable and uh, sustainable fashion.
0: Well, uh, D. Scully, thanks for coming out of Software Engineering Daily. Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure.